0: The other Bibles I'm going to be in uh, John chapter seven and John chapter eight. How many of you know that the Bible was not written with chapters and verses? It was, it was were added, uh, you know, a few centuries later. So that's the reason why I'm going seven and eight. Don't think that I'm going to read uh, uh, two chapters and you're going to be like, man, are we going to get out of here before lunch? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I'm going to be in John chapter seven towards the end of the seven, and then the we'll beginning part of John chapter eight. As you turn there, Tim, if you could play that for us. Every man went unto his own house.
1: Chapter 8. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went up one by one, beginning to the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Have no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go
0: and sin no more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that the seed of your word would find fertile soil in our hearts. God, break up the fallow ground in us. Lord, if there be any wayward way in us. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week we talked about the the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they wanted to kill Jesus again. The chief priests all the way, you know, even at this point, there's 20, years, 21 chapters in the, uh, in the gospel of John. And they are wanting to kill Jesus, like I said, a third of the way through uh, through the gospel. We often at th- times think that all of a sudden when it was like towards chapter 19 or towards chapter 20, all of a sudden, they're like, you know, I really don't like what Jesus is saying. They didn't like Jesus throughout. The chief priests, you know, and Pharisees and religious leaders and the Sadducees, as you'll see, they, they want to kill him. And the reason why is because of the claims that he's making. And what he's saying that, that they should do and the way that they should live. And Jesus, the claims that he's making, he says, I am the living bread. He's pointing to the fact of the man in the desert. He's All the times where he's claiming certain things, he's pointing back to the Old Testament of how God showed himself faithful and saying, I am God standing right in front of you and you're missing me. He said that you must be born again. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to change They, they like to hear that I can keep on doing what I can, what I want to do and still get away with it and still go to heaven, right? He also said, drink of me and you'll never thirst. Speaking of the fact that, that I mean, I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I felt just dry spiritually. And he says, and he makes a thing, he says, drink of me and you'll never thirst. These are the claims that he's making and they don't like the fact that. That he's making these claims, that he's basically putting him, that he's saying that he's God. That's the reason why they hate him. And for some, for in a culture that we live in that says Jesus is love, that God is love, yes, that is true. But they are trying to define God, trying to define, uh, uh, trying to define Jesus Christ with their version of what love is. It's not the fact of that God isn't love. God is love. But how many of you know if you love someone? You tell them that you love them, but also when you do something that you know that's not right or hurts someone, you let them know. You say, hey, that is not good for your neighbor. That is not good for you. What you're doing is going to... And people go, how dare you judge me? How many, how many times have you ever heard that? You know, only God can judge me. How much truth is in that statement that they think that they're getting off the hook with? They think that when they say, only God can judge me, what are they saying? They're they're condemning themselves at that point. They're saying, only God can judge me. It's like, yes, God will judge you. Do you want him to judge you? Or do you want to judge your life right now to where you can get it right to where you don't uh, burn in hell for all of eternity? Mm -hmm. Right? And so that's what we saw last week. And in in John chapter uh, chapter 7, verse uh, 53, and through uh, chapter 8, verse 2, it says this. And every man went unto his own house. They got mad at him, everyone went back home. Because they were trying to find claims. They they were telling him, uh, because Nicodemus came out and said, you know what? Shouldn't we at least hear what he's saying first before we make a judgment about him? And what do they come back and say? They come back and tell him, they said, basically, read your Bible. (laughs) The the Christ, the prophet, the Messiah is not going to come out of Galilee. And they just went home. Little did they know, or apparently obviously they didn't have been to Barnes and Noble or anything else and got the nativity story that they were where Jesus is, you know was born in Bethlehem, you know. They didn't have a Barnes and Noble to tell them that, right? Because it wasn't written yet. But they didn't bother to ask him where he came from, they only bothered to ask him where his hometown was because they already assumed, well, he was he lives in Galilee. I can tell you right now, obviously, I live in Carothersville. This is where I'm at. Where was I born? I was born in Waukegan. But if somebody says, where are you from? I say, "Carrollsville." Does it make sense? But they're not, they're not asking that question. And so in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him. And, and he sat down and taught them. So this is like, so it seems like something that Jesus had been doing. That he was, it was, you know, something that he just went into the temple, been teaching and everything else. It seemed like a normal day. And so when he wakes up early in the morning, I know that oftentimes we talked about this, but he wake, uh, it's, this is my opinion that he's waking up early to go to the Mount of Olives because normally when he went up to the Mount of Olives, he went up there to pray because he was trying to get away from everything and pray. It doesn't say that in, the, you know, in this portion of scripture, but that's my interpretation of that he went up to pray before he taught. How many of you know that if you're getting ready to teach scripture or whether you're going to go to the store, you probably should pray. Because there's been times where I've been inside of you know inside of a store, I'm going, "Oh Lord, help me!" But he, so this was something that he was accustomed to doing. So he he gets up there, he's getting ready to teach, he's getting ready to show him, you know, uh, all the things that you know he's getting ready to teach. And then in verse uh, three it says, "And the scribes and Pharisees," so they're back at it again. They went home, but they're back at you know doing what they're going to do. Brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had uh, and then when they had said her. In the midst. So the reason, the reason why we see you know this whole thing going on, and this morning I'm, I'm preaching on the on, on the subject guilty. The title of my message is guilty. There's no way that this woman is not. They caught it. You we'll see here in a moment. She's caught in the very act of it. I mean, there's no other way you can sit. You know, say, well, I heard that so and so. I heard that she's doing this, this, and this. Did you find it, ever find it interesting? That they, they bring the woman caught in adultery, but where's the man? My man. My man. Okay. Last time I checked, it takes two to tango. That's right. But can't. here's the thing. This is the reason why. Adam Clark said, that, you know, this is the reason. He says, it is allowed that adultery was exceedingly common at this time. It it right. So, it don't make it right. So common that they had ceased to put the law in force against it. Here's the, and so basically, it's like today. How much has it changed? Sorry, um, there's ones out there that call it dating. No, it's called adultery. That's what it's called. And the thing is, is that out there nowadays, if you're dating and you're you're, you're with that person, what what ends up happening? Oh, they're just dating. They're just seeing each other, how everything's going on, and, you know, see if they like each other. I've heard that comments and those ones. Well, the thing is that they're actually breaking one of the Ten Commandments, but also... In in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, you're going, oh man, he's going to Leviticus this morning. But this is what it says. This is what the punishment should be. This is what she should get. She's got it coming to her, right? Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says, And the man that committed adultery with another man's wife, even he that committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, and the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. She's guilty, she's flat out. Like I said, we're gonna see in a moment that she's caught in the very act of it. That they're supposed to put both of them to death, but I find it funny that she's brought, but the man's not. So I don't know, I would say this, and this is my opinion, this is what I'm putting into the thing. What position of authority did he have that they didn't want to bring him out and embarrass him and put him to death? Maybe he has some sort of political position we just know the woman's called, you know, and they bring her out. Verses 4 and 5 says this. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? She's caught in the very act. She should be put to death. She's flat out guilty. There's no if, ands, or but about, you know. If you catch somebody, you know, right? It's kind of like when I was a kid and I was, you know, saying, because this happened, you know, a few times, so it's not like the fact that it was, you know, I'm picking the story out of the air, but my hand was caught in the cookie jar. And mom or dad walk in, Sean, what are you doing? Uh, I mean, I tried to come up with something clever. Oh, I was just cleaning, making sure that it was all good, that all the cookies were still in there. While I had like cookie crumbs on my, not, you know, coming down my face. I was just checking and inspecting them. You know, I was trying to be a cupbearer, you know. I was just making sure that they were poisonous for everybody else in the household. How many of you know they ain't gonna fly because they caught me right in the, you know, the very act. And the thing is, is that as we all know, and this is something that I taught my daughter is, is that if you're honest with us, the punishment is probably gonna be less then <laughs> if you lie, I didn't learn that. Um, I just went ahead and just flat out lied. And now I know you know, not to do that, but when I was a kid, I just flat out lied. And that's something that we need to teach our kids is not to lie, just to flat out say, hey, you know what? I get it. You saw me? I might as well just come out and tell you because there's no lawyer that can help me at this point. I'm just <laughs> telling you right now. There ain't no lawyer because if you're caught in the very act, there's no lawyer that's going to help you. Verses uh, 6 through 9 say this. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to uh, have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and, with his finger on the ground as though he heard them not. So he's basically almost like ignoring them you know, at this point. He's just, he just says that he, he stooped down acting like he didn't even hear them. Verse 7 says, And when they continued asking uh, him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you let him first cast a stone at her and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground and they which heard it being convicted of their own conscience went out one by one beginning at the eldest even unto the last and jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the in the midst and so jesus comes out how many times you know that i've heard this from christians coming out there if you point something else They quote this verse. They quote these verses. He that is without sin, cast the first stone. It's like they're, it's like their get out of free jail card, you know? It's like they're playing Monopoly and saying, I want to get out of jail free. Well, he that is without sin, cast the first stone, so you have sin in your life, so don't don't be talking about my sin. Which the last time I remember reading a scripture, the Bible tells us to be holy as he is holy. Right? That he is, he who is holy, you know, be like him. Who's holy? Jesus. God. He is that one. And, we don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground, but we do know what he said. And he said, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. He just, he's kind of like leaving her high and dry. She's, she's probably sitting there thinking, um, thank you so much. I'm about to die. Because you just told them, you just gave them permission to throw a stone at me, to try and kill me. Here's the thing. Where it also says, it says, they were, this being the, the scribes at first, he says, being convicted by their own conscience. Our conscience bears witness of whether or not we are in Christ or not. There's a difference between being convicted and being condemned. Do you know that? Some people put it in the same thing saying, if you're convicted, you're already condemned. Not. There's a difference between the two. The difference between uh, being condemned and convicted because condemnation them who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit so as believers we are to be walking after the spirit not after our own desires being convicted convicted is brought on by the Holy Spirit conviction when you feel conviction in your heart don't, oh, that's just the devil trying to get me down, whatever. No, if you're being convicted, God, what he is doing is that he convicts us to correct us. Yes. If we are in Christ and if we sin, if, remember I said if, not when. If we sin, the Lord will convict you to correct you. Yes. He, he chastens, he disciplines us. Yes. When we move out, you know, outside of what his, what his word says. Condemnation is outside of Christ Walking after the flesh As it talks in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 Or it can be the devil condemning you For what you have already been Forgiven of This is what the devil will do Especially with young, uh, young Christians I'm talking, I'm talking about newly saved They will come down to an Really happen do you really think that you know, coming down there and praying that little prayer that like you said that, that can give you know, all, a lifetime of, of wickedness and sin, that God can take that away from you? And he will sit there and keep on condemning you for all this stuff. And God has already forgiven them. He's already forgiven them. That's and, and, and just the good. It's the, that's why you need to find a, a good Bible-believing church. You need to find somebody that is more mature than you. And let me tell you this. Just because a person has gray hairs on their head does not make them more mature than you. I have a few. doesn't make me more mature than, you know, than, you know, than some that maybe don't. Because spiritual maturity comes from reading God's word, following what it says, and praying and saying, God, change me. The life that we live is what shows maturity. I could be I can sit up here and say, you know I've been a believer for 40-some years and whatever, and we go, ooh. But if I've never gotten past what the Bible refers to as spiritual milk and haven't moved on to the meat, I'm right back there. I'm basically like a 40-year-old person drinking off a bottle. And how many of you have ever seen a 40-year-old person drink a of a bottle? You would sit there and go, that person's a little... I was going to say a little loopy um, you know they, they should be having a steak or something you know, or whatever but he says have to move on to the meat of the word so that way you're able to uh, help them because there's things in your life as a mature believer that you can help them know and you can show them and say you know what I went through you know maybe you've gone through the same things and you say this is how God brought me through it, and let them know just because these things are coming against you does not mean that God's going to leave you there He's going to work it into the day of when He comes back. He's going to keep on working on you. But the thing is, it's always good to have that believer there to encourage them to say, you know what, I can get past this. This is what God's Word is, and, and to help them. Verses 10 through 11 says this, When Jesus When Jesus had lifted up Himself and saw none but the woman, He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What this tells me is the fact that her death sentence, because of the fact that, that she came there, was that she was already repentant in her heart. She was already, she knew what she was doing what was wrong. She already knew it. She, she looked at it. She, she figured out, you know what? I shouldn't have been doing that. I know this. I mean, I it doesn't say in there, but I can by her answer, by Jesus's answer, I know that she turned her life over to Him, that she gave to you know gave her life to Him. And here's the thing: is that repentance had taken place, and Jesus doesn't condemn her for her adultery that she had just committed. But He makes the interesting statement. He makes these, these four or five words at the end. He says, "Go and sin no more." I've heard people excuse this statement of go and sin no more. That they have got out there and said, Well, he didn't really mean that. He mean he just kind of was saying you know, he he didn't really mean what he was saying. as like, the last time I, I saw Jesus didn't really say, Okay, read the fine print. Or please read between the lines. He just he makes his statement and he expects you to follow it. If he tells you to do something, like if I tell my daughter, my wife tells my daughter to do something. We tell her something that she is able to do. I don't tell her to go out and wash and wax my car. I don't tell her to go out there trying to pick up my car and, you know, and hold it up while I'm working underneath it. Because I know she can't do it. I have told her to clean up her playroom. I have told her to clean up her bedroom. Why? Because I know she can do it. Jesus says, go and sit no more. Does he ever tell us to do something that we can't? No then why do we hear so many off-handed comments when somebody keeps doing the same thing for years upon years upon years? They made this thing of, and these are statements that honestly make me sick to my stomach. I've heard them, and I've talked about this before, you know, sometimes the spirit of slap, just whatever, and I just gotta hold it back, I just gotta resist, because I just, it's not what it's saying. It's not what it's saying. They make these statements. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I can't stop sinning. Or, my all time personal favorite, sarcasm deeply intended, is if I don't sin, then I wouldn't need God's grace. How wicked is that statement? If I don't keep on sinning, then I wouldn't need God's grace. If I, if I stop, then why would I need Jesus? I've heard these things and I'm going. Do you even hear yourself? I mean, that's like, you know, that's like a spouse coming out and you're saying, if I don't smack my wife every once in a while, she won't know I love her. And then when she comes back and you know, you know, pops you one, then you'll know why. I mean, come on, think about it. Let's look at these statements. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Nowhere in the Bible does it even imply that we are to continue to sin or to be in sin Once we're saved Alright And for you uh, I'm going to clarify this in a moment Because somebody say Well does that mean that I'm supposed to be sinless I'm supposed to be a sinless perfection No I'm talking you know, I'm, I'm telling you how this, The Bible says That we as Christians are to be perfect Some people don't like that You know, say, well, they, they use the P word um, Well here's the thing We are called to live a holy life before the Lord and those around us. That's how people know that we are different from them. That's how they know. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. If you're sinning, if you're continuous sinning, are you living a holy life? No. No. That's in 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 through chapter 2 verse 2. Like I said before, the Bible didn't have chapters and verses until, you know, a couple centuries after it was completed. So that's why we all do this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. They'll sit there and say, oh, see, look, I have to sin. They don't want to keep reading. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What do you say? This is past tense. He's talking about our previous life. Because we know the Bible says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So it doesn't mean, well, I have to sin so Jesus can come with me. No. Just keep on reading. My little children, these things I write unto you, that, if, that ye sin not. He's saying, don't sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What is he saying here? God provided a way so that we, we don't have to continue to sin. The thing is, is, it's by his Spirit. And I'm going to read the verse, uh, verses in here that talk about that it's only through the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives that we are able to have that, to be able to not go and sin. Because if we're not a, or if we're not a believer if we're not a believer
1: that's when we sin. Why? Because
0: we don't know any better. We just sit there and keep on doing whatever we you know we taught ourselves to do. It says if we sin. That means the Lord corrects and chastens us to keep us in our relationship with Him. It says if. It doesn't say when. And He says These my desire is that you don't sin. He John, you know, is saying, I understand that there's that possibility that you may still sin, but it's not the fact that you are continuing to do. If you are still doing the same things that you did when you were not saved as as opposed to being saved now, there's something wrong. You're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have faith in him to, uh, to bring that about in your life. If we refuse his chastening and correcting, then we backslide and can leave the faith. If we just continue to say, you know what? I don't have to deal with it. That's just the devil trying to you know, condemn me. No, if it's really there, you better deal with it. You better get rid of it. Don't sit there and keep on going. Next one, I can't stop sinning. Here's the thing. You've had a life of, of sin. You've conditioned your body, this, this body, this physical body to sin, right? You've conditioned it. All the sinning that you've been doing, you've conditioned this body to say, that's what I need and that's what this body does. Whatever we, we put in it, comes out, right? There's a reason why people, when they get older, not like, you know, just way older, you know, that they'll say, I wish I would have taken care of my body when I was younger. It's because whatever they were doing, they knew it wasn't right. It was, I wish I would have exercised. I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have... So if you So if you can condition your body to sin... You can also can condition your body to stop and to live a holy life. <laughs> Romans chapter eight verse thirteen says, "If it says for if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if he uh, through what through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. If he put to death, mortify it means like mortician. If it's you put it to death, you don't. That's why that's why Paul says." We, are, we crucify our flesh. Where does crucifixion bring about? It doesn't bring about happy days. It brings about death. That we are to put to death. And we don't sit there and try and bring it back to life. We let it die. Let it be. Let it go. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says this. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, uh, evil uh, concupiscence" And covetousness, which is idolatry. Mortify them. Put to death what you are doing. Romans chapter 12. Sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your, your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Everything you have happens in your mind. You've conditioned your mind to do one thing as far as sin. You can condition your mind to change it. They've actually even shown through neuroscience that when you start doing a new habit, it actually creates a new pathway in your mind covering up the old one. Your brain is ever changing as you go and you change things. So you can change those things in your life. You can change those pathways in there. Renew in your mind that you may approve what it what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? He's saying change those things. Is this sometimes easy? No. But the thing is, is that it's what? Through the Spirit of God that He helps you and enables you to be able to do it. It says that they were what? Convicted in their own conscience. Oftentimes we'll hear our conscience speaking to us and say, well, let just rethinking. That's how the Holy Spirit speaks to you and through you. We talked about the Holy Spirit last week. About him be, uh, us being baptized in all Holy Spirit. He speaks to you through your conscience. And that last statement is just flat out ludicrous. I don't understand how somebody can say this with a straight face. Or how they can actually think this is biblical. If I don't understand, then I wouldn't need the grace of God. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We'll lay it to rest. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You say we're supposed to be dead to it. How are you going to sit there and say, you know, I want to still live in it? I'm sorry, like, when I find something that, you know, that is not right with my wife, you know, that I'm doing that is wrong towards my wife, I try to correct it. Why? Because. I don't want that tension or that friction between us. It's the same way with God. He says that we put these things away. That you know what? That we are to be dead to sin. So why are we trying to still live in it still? Why are we trying to live in it still? I'm going to give you a bonus one this morning. Anyone ever hear somebody say, once I'm saved, I'm always saved? There is truth in it. But it's been... Because here's the thing, I've heard this one, it says, basically this this statement is implying that no matter what they do, that they can never forfeit their salvation, that, that no matter what happens, I can go out and, and sleep as many people as I want to, I can do this, 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 and this, and this, and I'll never lose my salvation. Because like Because it's eternal. That's what I've heard, it's eternal. Yes, it is eternal salvation, but the thing is, is that, you know what, that's on God's side. Your side is to live a holy life. Throughout the book of James, he refers to believers as brethren. He doesn't refer to brethren just as, hey, you're my friend. You know, you're my brother. No. He's saying that if you're a believer in Christ, you are brothers. So he's speaking to them. He's speaking to the brothers in Christ those who are believers in Christ. And what does it say? In James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, it says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, you have to be in the truth in order to err from it. Alright? It says, And one converted him. Let him know that he that, uh, he which converts the sinner from the error of his ways, even goes, you know, the fact of saying that he's a sinner. <laughs> that, they're, that they're still going on to it. Of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. James is flat out just telling them this is what it is. This is how it is. And he's saying, so if if a person is converted from the truth or errors from the truth, they have to be in the truth. They have to be a believer first, right? And saying he's saying that if they're going away from the truth, that they're following their own the way. So that one saved always saved thing is it's a it's a true statement, but it's been taken completely out of context. I do believe in the fact that once we're saved we abide in Christ. That's our you know that's our eternal salvation right there. We're abiding in Christ. We're not going off doing our own thing. We're following what God's word says. We're we're loving him. We're praying we're seeking him. We want you know we want to love God with everything and we want to love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen. <laughs> so what do we do with the woman in adultery? We know that the woman was caught in the very act of it. But where does adultery or sin in general generate? Well, so what is it, adultery? Matthew chapter 5 verse 28 says this, But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so we look at that and go, oh, okay, well, lust, you know, so lust is a part of it. So lust comes in, you know, into adultery. So what is lust? Well, let's look at James chapter 1, verse uh, 13 through 15. It says, Let no man uh, say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempted he uh, any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, Brings forth death. So the very beginning of it is lust. Lust brings about sin. So like we look at it in the dictionary definition of lust is a longing desire and an earnest to possess or enjoy. It's a to, to desire eagerly or it's a long after. It's something that you really, really want. It's not always like how it is, how it's presented here in the Gospel of John. It's not always some sort of a sexual thing that happens. Lust is basically this big desire for something that you, have, you, you feel like you've got to have. It. Well, you know what? Lust is actually coveting. Coveting is, is to desire inordinate, inordinately to desire that which is unlawful to obtain or possess. You say, well, how is lust and coveting, how are they together? Uh, together? How are they the same? How do they want the 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 reason why I know this is because in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I, I, had, I had not known sin, but by the law. For if I had known, or for if I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Scripture always defines Scripture, it always does. So what he is saying here is that he wouldn't have known what lust was except that the law said, Thou shalt not covet. They are one and the same. It's just longing and desire. And there are there's a good coveting and a bad coveting. You ever heard somebody say, I covet your prayers? They're saying, I desire, I long for you to do that for me. I desire for you to pray for me. That's what they mean by that. Some people say, well, isn't it wrong to covet? It's wrong to covet in the fact that you're going after something that is not yours. And that you long, long into to desire. So why did I go on this journey to define these terms of basically starting at adultery and coming down to coveting? Why did I do that? Because maybe not everyone in this place this morning has committed adultery. But I can almost guarantee that almost everyone in this place has coveted something. They wanted something that somebody else had. They wanted somebody else's possession. Or they wanted what somebody else had as far as a spouse. They saw it and they thought the grass was greener on the other side. So it's not just the fact of yeah you know, we can sit there and point and say I don't really need to listen to this message because it's talking about adultery. I've never done that. I I don't even I, you know I don't even know where that comes in. But pretty much almost everyone in this place, whether they were a kid at the, at the time, has wanted something that somebody else possessed. you think that you know uh, that doesn't happen and that there's not a, you know kind of like that a little desire there? Watch a kid in the playroom. They start fighting and arguing. It's mine, it's mine. No, it's not. And before you know it, somebody takes a, a toy truck to the head.